Hello everyone, it's Elliot here and this is episode 71 of The Stagey Place, which also coincides as the final episode of this podcast for 2022. Now, when I was thinking about who I wanted to have on for this final episode of the year, I wanted to celebrate somebody who I actually celebrated earlier in the year with our Edinburgh Fringe Awards. So today I am very excited to be bringing onto the podcast Max Dickens, who was the writer of Love Them to Death, which I chose as the best play of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for 2022. And you'll hear more about why I chose the play and what I loved most about the play during this interview with Max, which was actually a long time coming. We were trying to plan this quite a few times and sadly with conflicting schedules, it didn't really work out. But I've finally been able to interview Max and you are about to hear it right now. And also, I just want to say to you, the listeners, thank you so much for your continued support throughout 2022. 2023 is going to be a big year with some brand new hosts, some of which you've heard already and some which you will hear more from in 2023. And I'm really excited to see what 2023 has to offer. But for now, rounding off 2022 of The Stagey Place with episode 71 is writer Max Dickens. Hello, Max, and welcome to The Stagey Place. How are you doing today? I'm really good. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. I was delighted to have your support at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And so the opportunity to talk to you personally is, is what I've been looking forward to. Yeah, it is really exciting because Max, as you just said there, uh, we're here today to talk about Love Them to Death, a show which you wrote and took to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year in 2022. I came to see this production on one of its final days, actually, at the Fringe. And I'm so lucky enough to say that I did see this one because it really did blow me away. This play, honestly, from the very beginning to the very last moment, just had me engrossed, had me hooked, not just because I was in the second row of the audience, but just because of the writing, of the performances that you had on stage. It's so natural, I think, to go to Fringe and see a two-hander play and just think that you're just going to be watching an hour of just a, a random play that you don't really know much of. But your performances from the performers was absolutely one of the best things about the Fringe as a whole. It was incredible. Here at the stage place, we nominated the show for best play at the Fringe, which it then went on to win. And honestly, Max, I have really haven't stopped thinking about the show. I I was on a five-hour train journey back from the Fringe, and all I could think about was this show and just how much it just completely took hold of me. We've got so much to talk about with this play, Max, and I've got so much that I want to talk about with it. But first of all, one I want to ask you about is the inspiration behind writing the piece. So can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration and the story of Love Them to Death? Yeah, absolutely. So Love Them to Death, I would describe it as a contemporary thriller. Now, there's lots of discussion around what it's about, and I'll probably wait for people to see it before and make their own judgment on it. But it's set in a a world of of a condition that is colloquially known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but actually it should be known as fabricated and induced illness. Or is it? That's kind of the setup of the show. So. Fabricated and induced illness is essentially when caregivers, generally parents and generally mothers, exaggerate, fake or induce illness in in their children. Now, this happens a lot more frequently than anyone knows or talks about. And it's really interesting as a world because 
it's wrapped up in so many things about contemporary culture. So, for example, the medicalization of society, the attention economy. So a lot of people do this as a way of getting attention for themselves. A lot of people are not even aware they're doing this because what they see is, is a genuine medical complaint. And the lines between illness and health have become so ambiguous and have moved in so many different directions, especially in the mental health realm, that these conversations become much more uh, controversial and hard to conclude in either direction about what what is going on truly in that moment now so the inspiration of the show Elliot is I was doing a tour of a, a show I did called Man on the Moor which I actually performed it was a one-man play and a woman came up to me in the bar at Windsor Arts Centre afterwards and said I'll tell you what you should do for your next show is I'm an attendance officer at a local school and I've got five cases of this Munchausen thing at the same time an absolute nightmare to deal with and so I struck up a relationship with this person and we would have Skype calls and phone calls. And I kind of delved into it, I did a huge amount of research into this issue because I thought it was firstly really important that it wasn't sensationalist and that it represented everything in a way that was accurate, but also trying to get to the, the, the nub of the conflict with this stuff, which is it's very, very hard to prove who's right or wrong and I felt if you could design a plot where you could get the audience to swap who they were believing all the way through Mm. then that would be a really interesting experience for an audience and actually as a form would represent actually what this issue is like and one of the biggest things that's made me proud about the show is that people come up to us afterwards and say I work in uh, I'm a GP or I'm a doctor in a hospital or I'm a psychologist I'm a social worker who's dealt with this stuff and say, you've really put it on stage. And yeah. I think you said yourself, the actors, it's a tough gig. Yeah. And the actors did a really great job with it. And let's talk about the conversations then that you have with the attendance officer, then doing all the research and stuff. When you're then writing the play and, you know, you've you've got these characters in mind, do you know where the ending of the play is when you start writing it? Because obviously, like you say, as an audience, we are toying with what's right. You know, who's the right person? You know, do yeah. we believe this mother? Do we believe the attendance officer? For you, in your mind, do you know the truth of, you know, what the real outcome is? That's a really good question. And I think it's important when you write a show that you know what your ending is going to be so you can set up the ending in the best way. Yeah. But it's kind of another question about in my heart or in my mind, do I know what happens next? Yeah. And I kind of know, but because yeah. of the whole nature is ambiguity, I was like, well, we were talking about this in the rehearsal room. Well, you know, yeah. what does happen next? But interestingly, in making the show, the first and early drafts, it was much more conclusive at the end. And I, I, I spoke to a really good director, and I won't say who it is just for, for confidentiality. And yeah. they said, you've written a really exciting show here, but you've got to be careful you don't write a show about a mad woman because yeah. the issue is a much more interesting than that. And she's absolutely right. And I didn't want to write that. By, by, but by being very conclusive, it let the audience off the hook because it was going, this is hopefully when people watch it, they see elements of themselves in both these flawed characters. Yeah. But if you have a baddie and a goodie, what you're essentially going is you can put all this, you can put the Munchausen stuff in a pot and go, oh, it's only mad, mentally ill people who would do this. But actually there's elements of the behavior and elements of the mindset that we all have 
So it really improved the show to make it more ambiguous. But about four months out from the first performance, it had a completely different ending. And it was a discussion with a paediatrician that gave me a piece of information. And for spoilers, I won't say what it is, but she, this, it was a very specific piece of information that most people would have shrugged off. And I suddenly thought that bit of information, if I set it up early, that could be the twist at the end that I need. But it came quite late in terms of changing that. And yeah. it, again, it's an example for me how, if you're a theatre maker listening to this, how research can be a real gift but it's a real crapshoot is an exaggeration. <laughs> but I mean, I could show you behind me earlier, I've got 15 different notebooks full of stuff. 80% of it doesn't make it in. But yeah. You have to put the world and you never know when that piece of information can give you the plot turning yeah. points that you need. Yeah, yeah. And uh, look, we're going to talk a lot more about Love Them to Death a little bit later on. But Max, I want to talk about you as a writer, because obviously we must talk about the fact that you are also an author and you've got your book Billy No Mates out at the moment, which talks about relationships and especially male relationships um, and how we can find it hard to be in uh, just friendships. I haven't read the book. I haven't got the book with me either, uh, but I will definitely be buying it because I think it's such an important topic. But Max, I want to talk about you just as a writer how did you get into writing so I got into writing on the stand-up comedy circuit so I started off I was a radio presenter for a station called Absolute Radio doing overnights believe it or not (laughs) and I was doing stand-up so I never that's what got me into I had to write material yeah and then the the bridge into books and theater was firstly that the people I really looked up to, like in the stand-up world, there's an act called Daniel Kitson, who is like a legend in the field, but maybe a mainstream audience hasn't heard of him. He's regarded as like one of the all-time greats. But he then started doing these one-man theatre shows. And I'd go and see them, especially at Edinburgh, and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. But it was the fact that he could explore a real breadth of language and a breadth of ideas, which I found in stand-up, you couldn't really do because you do have to try and get a laugh every 15 seconds or so. Yeah. And the best stand-ups in the world can combine it with some more thematic stuff. But if you're doing clubs, like I was doing clubs on a Friday, Saturday night, you can imagine what those audiences are like, you know, you've got to deliver yeah. Yeah. four or five drinks. You know, they don't, they don't want to listen to some sort of ruminations on the nature of uh, love, for example. Yeah. So I thought I want to write to test myself, but also to have a scope to explore ideas more. And talking about uh, Love Them to Death, yeah. you've obviously brought it to Edinburgh. And like you say, you, we've already talked about a couple of reactions that you've had already in the pre- previous answer. What was the overall reaction like for you? Because were you up throughout the whole time in Edinburgh? And did you did you manage to really gauge what audience was saying? And obviously, like you say, you've got all these notebooks, 80% of the stuff isn't in. You make it your world to write this play. When you then get it up on its feet and audience are watching it, what is the overall reaction from the audience? But also, how do you feel now that the play is out for people to see at Edinburgh? I was... Honestly, I, I wasn't sure how it would go because I thought, you know, it's it's quite, it's pretty dark. There are some some lighter moments in there as well. There's a lot in it for you as an audience if you come in and get stuck in. But I was I just thought I thought it would split people because of the subject matter, and it didn't split people as much as I thought. But what I did find interesting is a lot of people come to theatre to be told 
that what they think and know already is correct. They right. don't read really things that challenge them. I, I find in theatre there is some the audiences say is absolutely amazing because yeah. it basically gives them a high five, psychic high five. Whereas yeah. if you challenge them a bit, then some people don't like it as much. But I, what I found really interesting is you really see how story affects an audience's attention. So when you're in the room, there is a real difference between silence because people are being polite yeah. and silence because people are in it. They yeah. are hooked in and you can almost see them lean in on their chair. You hear a lot less shuffling. People not don't take their jumpers off. They're not oh. kind of dealing with their boats. It's a real, you get the thickness of the air. You can kind of feel it. And that for me is really exciting. I, I love hearing people's reactions when there are surprises, when on the way out, you know, what they're saying. It's really exciting. I'm not a great watcher of my own stuff, though. I watched it probably four or five times across the run. Okay. But I didn't go in every day because I would just be feeling it in every single beat. Yeah. Torture myself. I would say that I think that's why I nominated it. All three plays that we nominated for the stage plays were because they were challenging and they were tough. Swarm was one of the other nominated plays which spoke about asylum seekers and, you know, how the government spoke to them as being a swarm. And with yours, with Love Them to Death, it is that it's that it's that idea that we're all in a room that we're all engaged like that that silence of hearing a pin drop in the room because we are so focused on something that many of us don't know about you know i think there's been one television program in the modern years that has tried to talk about the idea of what love love and death is talking about but we are challenged as an audience to really focus because across the whole of edinburgh you constantly see two-handers that are about relationships or about creatives trying to make it into the industry, you know, that are writing plays. But actually, then you see something like Love Them to Death, which had an amazing poster of a plaster, you know, thrown across the child's face. That just, like, completely... I think I saw the poster, and it was the poster that drew me to the show. And I saw it at night. I think it may have been one of the late nights that we had. Um, and I went, I want to go and see that because I don't think I'd seen it around Edinburgh much. But then I saw it on one of the Cowgate big boards and I went, that's what I want to go and see. And I just pull it into my diary and I came to the filmed production. So it must have been one of the very last days, the very wow. last days of the production. And yeah, I just went, this is the show that everybody needs to see. It was too late into the run to really, <laughs> really exactly. put it out there. But that's yeah. what I want to move on to. Obviously, it was too late to talk about people going to see it. But are there any next steps for Love Them to Death? Because, you know, obviously, like you say, you, you film it for like archive purposes. But with a play like this that has such a story, is yeah. there any room for any future outings for the show? There's a couple of things. I mean, one of the reasons why we filmed it is that yeah. it's going to help it get another life. We're talking to various people at the moment i'm i'm desperate to to do it hopefully in london and hopefully a tour we're trying to get that done i'm also thinking of trying to develop it into a television thing out of that is is going to be interesting to think about because without getting too into the nuts and bolts of storytelling in tv you have to have stories that can run and run as you imagine if someone's going to make something quite expensive they're going to want to have three, four, five episodes minimum. They're not going to want to have... In Edinburgh, that story really works well in that slot. Um, but we might explore that. But yeah, I really want it to have an extended life. We're talking about it at the moment. And support from people like you is really helpful. 
yeah, that's that's incredibly exciting to hear. Yeah, it all just the play text. I mean, I know that you know this this kind of story. I think needs to be seen more than read. But I but I was just so focused on the story, and like you said earlier on with like the research, when you get that one bit of nugget that you can plant into the show earlier on, it becomes a show that could also be a repeat viewing because you are constantly then going, what's the stuff that had been planted earlier yeah. on to then create this conclusion. And it is, and it is a moment in the play where where the clogs start ticking, and then it's like, oh my god, yeah, because you didn't <laughs> this earlier on in the play, and it just, yeah, it just made me go, you know, there are some plays obviously in Edinburgh that do have play text, and I was like, this is the one that I need to get because it would be the play that I would be then circulating around other people and being like, you may not be able to watch it. I'd say watch it first, but you know, you need to read it as well. It's it's just phenomenal. We're going to move on to advice now, Max, that you may have for people who want to become a writer. Obviously, you're an author, you're a comedian, you know, a radio presenter. But as a writer, for people who want to get into writing, and it may be theatre, people may be coming to this episode because they know your book, Billy No Mates. So you may want to talk about being an author or about researcher, researching stuff for plays or books. What advice would you have for people listening to this episode who want to become a writer in any form of media? Absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing I'd say, and this is going to sound quite glib and trite, is you've got to actually write something. Now, that sounds really obvious, but a lot of people talk about writing a lot more than they do it. And why don't they do it? It's because they compare where they are at with someone who's much later in their career and go, oh, God, I'm crap. I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to finish. So to try and write something, whether it be uh, a 1,000 word blog post, whether it be a short, if you're in theatre, you know, write a few scenes, write a a very short play. Um, And you do get a lot better by doing it. It's not a myth. Um, So, And the the second thing you have to do after starting is finish. So not many people start, but even less people finish. And the reason why finishing what you're working on is really important is that you don't only learn a lot about the piece you've written and go like, aha, I now know what it needs. I now actually know how it should work and you can write it again. And writing is rewriting. Lots of people, a lot more renowned than me, will say the same thing, but it really is. But if you don't finish anything, you also don't have anything to share. You don't have anything to get feedback on from other people and you don't get that momentum. And often starting is exciting then you get into a difficult middle bit where you're like, oh God, I'm not very good yet. I don't know what happens next or what to do. And when you get through that bit, the ending's like, oh, this is the end. And everything can get a lot better. Your skill set, the work itself. So you've got to finish. And the third thing I'd say is it's really easy, I think, with writing to get sucked into obsessing over research. So when I've done all my research, I'll write something. Or I'm going to read 10 books about writing and then I'm going to write something. And it's something I'm aware of. It's like a form of procrastination but it's about consistently sitting down and trying to trying to write and not getting lost in all these things, letting those sorts of books, letting the research inform your process and not put the process off. I would also say, fourthly, can your ability to become a good writer will be, can you put up with being crap for ages? Yeah. Because you will, because I, I mean, I still am. You should see my first draft, dreadful. <laughs> you've got to be able to get through it and go I don't hate myself I'm going to keep going be prepared to get feedback from smart people not anyone but get feedback because the feedback in my life 
has made my finish work way better. So Billy Nomates, I work with a guy called Andrew Hankinson, who's a nonfiction writer, he's won quite a lot of awards, as well as my editor at the publisher. I'd send him chapters and it would come back and it would be brutal, the notes. Yeah. But I'd learned loads about writing from the notes and he made the books so much better. But it was a tough old slog to put myself through that. Love them to death. I mentioned that I had a conversation with this director who basically said, there's a lot in this, but, you know, I'm not sure you've nailed this. I think it needs some work. And hearing that, Elliot, when we'd already, everything's already been booked in, yeah. happening, and you've been told <laughs> the thing you've got doesn't work, and you've got three months to turn it around, you know, that's quite scary. But yeah. if I hadn't had that conversation, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, I don't think. So as advice goes, that's what I'd say. Nice. And what are you working on at the moment? Are you researching anything new for any new projects? I'm working on a TV adaptation of Billy Nomates, thinking about Love Them to Death, about how that might work on TV. I'm exploring some ideas for maybe books uh, or theatre pieces. I'm, tr I'm trying to work out. I'm in that weird bit of my career where I haven't been very strategic in my writing career. I've done anything I found interesting, which is yeah. probably a sensible thing to do on one hand. But on the other hand, I feel now at the ripe old age of I've just turned 35, I maybe need to be a bit more strategic. I also need to think about in five years, what am I going to be known for? Yes. And I need to start working towards that. So that's kind of a work in progress. So if anyone's got any ideas, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously with Billy Nomades and Love Them to Death, obviously they start out as two separate forms, as a play and as a book. Yeah. You know, we're talking about TV adaptations here as well. So when you are starting to create these uh, pieces of theatre or, or as a book with Billy Nomates, do you just have in mind that one outlet? So so as a theatre piece, as a book, and then, you, and then you think about the success or the response from that and then think, oh, maybe we could turn this into a TV adaptation. Let's talk about Love Them to Death. Obviously, yeah. like, you know, you do all this research and then you get it out as a theatre piece, which obviously can get quite a big audience because, you know, word of mouth and everything, you already create that audience that can then in a couple of years time go, oh, I saw this mm. in Edinburgh and now it's a TV thing. When you're researching, do you research just for the play or are you already having a nugget in your head and going, oh, I can create all these notebooks because if it goes really well, we can then turn it into a TV adaptation. I think in the research, the the research and the, the thing you write about will tell you what form it should take. Yep. So love them to death. Like I said, like in the early research, I was like, this seems like the conflict for me seemed pretty clear. And that felt as a self-contained, quite claustrophobic piece, it would work really well. I thought it would work better on stage than it would in TV because of the time-bound nature of it. There certain things where when I research it or think about it, I'm like, actually, this sort of material lends itself to a book. So Billy Nomates has a narrative running through it, but it's it's not pure narrative. Whereas when you're writing for the stage, you've got to really think about what's the central conflict? What is the change the characters go under? What is, what's the plot here? So different topics will lend itself to different things in the same way that sometimes I talk to, to book agents and they say they get submissions for books and they're like, this feels like a, a feature article you might get in a broadsheet. This feels like a 4,000 word thing. It doesn't need to be a 60, 80, 90,000 word book. 
So I think that the research will tell you what the thing needs to be. But I, I certainly don't start in advance going, I'm going to get a lot more material on the hope that it will get a TV thing. Yeah, yeah. But you do enough research to make sure you're representing the issue correctly and making sure you have enough material to draw on to build characters and a plot that are true to life and as compelling as you can make them. Yeah. Max, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Love Them to Death, to talk about the research period and the reaction that it had in Edinburgh and hopefully the future life that it may have. I've got one final question for you, though, today, Max, and it is the title of this podcast, and that is The Stagey Place. And what I love to know from all of my guests is whereabouts their stagey places. So, Max, for you, this could be your regional theatre that you grew up with, that you really enjoyed watching theatre. It could be the theatre that you've gone to see and has inspired your writing it can maybe not even be a theatre itself but the creative space in which you write your plays and have done throughout your career so Max Dickens reveal to us whereabouts is your stagey place my stagey place I think is the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh which is not my local theatre but I had some of my most kind of formative moments in wanting to do this or having the aspiration to do this there. I think of Kay Tempest performing Brand New Ancients there with a with a orchestra behind it. It was just one of the... What, it's a, 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 a night of my life where I look back and go like, oh my... I was just remember just being in awe of it. Yeah. And I've seen Daniel Kitson's The Death of Gregory Church, I think, I think it was called, with all his letters and seeing that and going like, well, this is absolutely magical. So that is my stagey place. Well, Max, that sounds perfect. I visited the Traverse a couple of times this year at the Fringe as well. It is a wonderful, wonderful space. So I do completely see why that has become your stagey place. And it's so nice to hear stagey places that are just, you know, completely all around the UK or have been across this podcast all around the world. You know, we we do really get a big difference in where people's stage places are. Max Dickens, thank you so much for joining me on the stage place today. I loved it. Thanks for having me. And there we go, everyone. That was my last interview of 2022 with writer Max Dickens, who won Best Script and Best Play at this year's Edinburgh Fringe Stadium Place 2022 Awards. I'd love to thank Max so much for coming on to the podcast, for being a brilliant guest and having a really insightful conversation about the structure of writing a play, plus the research that is involved when bringing together a play such as Love Them to Death. And so that brings us to the end of our final episode of The Stagey Place here in 2022. I'd love to thank every single one of my guests who have come onto the podcast this year. It's been an incredible year for the podcast and I'm really excited, like I said in the intro, to see where 2023 goes and how much this podcast can grow over the next coming year. Before now, if you're listening this New Year's Eve, I hope you have a wonderful celebration tonight. Whoever you're celebrating with and whatever you are doing, it's been a tough year for a lot of people and I really hope that you'll be able to see off this year and bring in the new year in true stagey style. So until you hear from me next in 2023, I hope you have the most wonderful send-off for 2022 and the most stagey year to come. <laughs>